Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. Suddenly, I appear to be joined, as usual, by two real academics from actual institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett, of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you from the Father Guido Sarducci Center of Excellence for the Ecumenical Study of Interfaith Religion and Society here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we turn our gaze on Iron Age temples, only this time we're talking about temples in Jordan. The little kingdoms of Ammon, Moab, and Edom shared borders with Israel and Judah and many aspects of culture not least of all the idea of national gods who require temples. So how are all these societies different, really? What about the Jordanian traditions of monumental sculpture, ink inscriptions on plaster, and ceramic figurines? So many figurines. How are we to understand all this, especially considering that in the late Bronze Age, there was basically one culture on both sides of the Jordan River? Is this like the Marvel and DC universes, or, or maybe Hasidic dynasties, needing to differentiate themselves from one another just enough while remaining mutually com comprehensible? And how did all this ferment in a quick 200 years or so from around 1200 to 1000 BCE? All we can really say is secondary state formation, it's a contact sport. Somebody want to talk? Okay. No, I'm talking. I'm talking. <laughs> Um, okay, well, I was a little flummoxed <laughs> regarding a, 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 a lightning round today. Does, does anybody have anything on the off the cuff? On the cuff? I forgot <laughs> to think about that. Yeah, there you go. Favorite, favorite sanctuary? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have been, that would have been apropos. Um, I can't, I can't, is that the official lightning round now? We're going to, are we going to go with that? Favorite sanctuary? I, I, I feel I feel like I'm not the best person to, I feel like we have roles and that, that's not my role to, to divine the lightning round. And favorite, um, favorite childhood food. <laughs> Completely. Childhood food. Well, what does that have to do with anything? No, it's just for the psychological profiler. Oh. How about monitoring? favorite figurine, favorite action figurine, favorite, favorite action figurine. figurine. <laughs> <laughs> that's I love Kamosh. I, I think we now have three questions and, <laughs> You can Collect answer the whole set. <laughs> Collect them. Trade them with your friends. Kamosh, Milkov, and Kos. <laughs> okay. Favorite figuring. I never had a GI Joe. I don't think my parents let me have GI Joe. I didn't have GI Joe either. Two militaries. Really, neither of you. Neither of you had GI Joe. No. All my friends' brothers had GI Joe. Really? Yeah. No. Hmm. Hmm. Um. I mean, my sister had Barbies, of course, but. I never I, my favorite figurines, or I guess, would be um, uh, Gumby and Pokey. Pokey. Yeah, yeah, I had a Gumby and Pokey. Yeah, I loved, I loved my Gumby and Pokey. Yeah, yeah, okay. they were bendable. They, they, they looked good enough to eat, right? <laughs> you know, they were kind of smooth and abstract, and you know, very, very brightly colored. The green right. and the orange. Hmm. Right. And when they wore out the little wire uh, frames, <laughs> poking out. Exactly. And you'd get, yep. they would draw blood. Yep, exactly. And then you knew it was time to get a new one. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. This would be a great lightning round if we were talking about figurines. Well, give it time. Okay. Um, what about you? Favorite? We, well, we I'm seem embarrassed. to share the same. I'm, I'm embarrassed because obviously I'm going to say Barbie. So. And what's wrong with Barbie? Well, apparently lots in the new culture. She's um, going to be the subject of a of a, a new movie. I know that I'm very excited about. It. I would see that movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But who's yeah. playing her? Hmm? Who who who's playing Barbie? Margot Robbie, the Australian actress. 
Okay. Um, Who's playing so, Ken? Uh, um, what's his name? Um, what's his name? Christopher Lee. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be good. Going a number of levels. and using a dead person. Um, it's it's what's his name from that movie with Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling. Yeah, him. Him. Okay. Yeah. He was in La La Land. Yeah. Who, who isn't? <laughs> well, who isn't in the 21st century? <laughs> so well, yeah, that'll be okay. That'll be good. So Gumby and Pokey, um, sort of a horse and rider. <laughs> Although he never rode. He did he ever ride uh, Pokey? No. No, no. That would well, have now, been... you're, now you're getting towards Iron Age figurines, though. If only we were talking about them. Well, we are talking about figurines because today we're talking about cult sites. Cult sites. Right. Cult, cult sites. sites in Jordan, in mm-hmm. fact. None of this none of this Israelite stuff. Mumbo jumbo. Right. <laughs> We've had enough of that fall to roll. <laughs> that, that could be the word of the day. That's a good um, word. No, but there's this this article in the uh the Jordan Times. Dated um, April 16th, not even 420, <laughs> which about, um, and I quote, thousands of animal bones, ceramic animal figurines, wall stones, and limestone altars have been found in Khirbid al-Mudena, an archaeological site southeast of Madaba, according to a Canadian archaeologist, Michelle Davio. Mm-hmm. And um, now one has to read down a little bit to to discover that uh, the project's been going on since 1996. So it's a little bit puzzling why the Jordan Times is just getting the story now. But <laughs> hey, why not? Better late than never. Get the news to the people. Right. Extra, extra. The pinball wizard and the miracle cure. Um, <laughs> and, and so <laughs> we... We put our minds together, such as they are, <laughs> and decided, well, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about Israelite and Judean religion and cult sites and stuff like that one under the underpass. Oh, that's right. That was under, a good episode. Under the boardwalk. That was a that was an award-winning episode. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a couple like that. And the yeah. Arad episode, which was one of our Well, I think this is gonna tie stone. all very neatly into the Arad episode. Because, um, okay, but one of us, not me, <laughs> really pro- properly introduced the the site, the material, the date. Because, right, I think that helps. Okay, so I'll I'll take a stab at it since I'm the one who usually does. Yeah, you're very good at this. Yeah, sometimes I am. So you so, should be a professor. You think? <laughs> <laughs> so so there's this. Um, place um, southeast of Malaba in, in Jordan called Khirbet el Mudaina, um, which has been excavated since the late 90s, as you said already. And um, among the, well, within the excavations, there's uh, a, a fortification wall and a gate. And in this area, there is also what's being called a, a temple or a cult room or something. And um, well, let's, let's use their language because they they do call it a temple. They do. That's true. They do. And it consists of one main room and an annex. And um, they have both. A multi-purpose room. Multi-purpose <laughs> room. Very interesting. Right. Uh, they have benches along their ra- their walls. That's um, how we know it's a temple. Right. That's right. <laughs> and there have been lots and lots of things found in, in this little complex, including, and, and here, I suppose, is the relevance to our lightning round, including um, some figurines, at least some partial figurines, um, like some heads and a torso and other things as well, um, including a bunch of lamps. Um, and um, probably most interestingly, there are these three altars, two of which are similar to each other. One is bigger, one is smaller. They're called shaft altars. Uh, and one of them was used for liquid. Um, and it has a hole for drainage in it, and uh, the other is smaller. And then the third one um, is differently shaped. It's um, it is cylindrical, and um, 
it was stained with soot. So clearly something was burned on it. Soot? Are we calling it soot or is it, could it be something else? (laughs) Something more (laughs) psychoactive. I'm I'm quoting the Jordanian Times article, which says soot. Yeah. but it could be something else. I don't know. I haven't read anything about that. Anyway, it's some sort of incense altar, and this this um, this uh, cylindrical altar uh, had an inscription as well. So that's kind of that identified it as a, a small altar, correct? Right. Right. So so um, so, so how is this any different from all of the stuff that we've talked about ad nauseum in the west of the river? I guess that's the question, right? Well, let's before we get to that. Before we get to those big, those big omnibus questions, <laughs> all right, the big omnibus questions. Let's talk a little bit about what we do know for these uh, small, smaller kingdoms on the east side of the river of Ammon, Moab, and Edom, and the kinds of cult spaces uh, that they have. All right, uh, and and. Undoubtedly, this uh, example from Moab really, you know, expands our understanding um, of what it means to have a some kind of a cult space in these smaller, um, you know, kingdoms uh, adjacent to um, Israel and then Israel and Judah. Right. Did did we say that this is within Moab territory? Because I think no. No, no it, and it, it's it's like the heartland of Moab. Right. It's not one of these real border shatter zones, <laughs> contact zones where the whole, but the whole of the Southern Levant is a shatter zone, contact zone. That's Cause, true. Because you turn around and it's like, oh wait a minute, <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, and and if and and to the extent that the biblical narratives can be can be trusted all these kingdoms are punching each other up all the time right yeah and and extra biblical evidence the the mesha steely in particular oh they came i kicked them out i beat them up uh the israelites in this case and and so on so there is a lot of shattering and contact punching it's a contact sport being a (laughs) secondary state formation is a contact sport Oh, I got to write that one down. <laughs> Essays in honor of <laughs> a secondary scholar. <laughs> and yeah, and so the the, the Mesha Steely actually parallels in, in, in war mentioned in the biblical text too. So that's that's always good to note. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but how is any of this different? They just have well, different gods. Okay, so sorta. There's there's a. I mean, there's, I think, a lot of interesting things. Um, do we want to talk a little bit more about this very small temple to be to just sort of, you know, at least um, explicate our starting point? Yeah, I think you want to talk about that a little bit more. <laughs> and when I say me, we, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a very small building. It's a very small room, right? It's something on the order of 5.5 by 5.5 meters. Okay. And I think that you know, um, these kinds of, you know, comparisons of space, of size of space, mm-hmm. I think it's really, really important because we'll use the term temple or cult space. And there's a lot of assumed, you know, kind of, you know, baggage associated with these things. But these are really, really modest places. And um, not only is it a modest place, but in the case of Herbert al Medina or Medina, it's not. We're not even in Diban. We're not even in sort of the the Moabite capital city right. or the Moabite. You know, and that we won't even talk about if it's if if it's a city state with a hinterland or we won't get into any of that because that's we've done that a, a million times. But it's a small room in a site that is also nominally small. Mm-hmm. And while it's in the core of Moab, it's not a demonstrably, you know, impactful site other than having what it has. So that's one thing that I think is really interesting because I think that sort of emphasizes the modest nature of the societies 
and possibly allows us to get at something about their organization, bottom up or top down. Mm -hmm. Southern Levantine societies in general have a lot to be modest about. (laughs) But, But okay, so how is that any different really from let's say the the little temples um, at places like Arad, west of the river, um, which are what, 10 by 10, 20 by 20 meters? By no means ginormous. No, no, not at all. Good point. But why don't we first start with comparing them, if we don't want to talk about them anymore, which I guess we don't, (laughs) comparing it to to at least like the, the Edomite cult spaces like keep meat and ain Well, those are even more we right, right. <laughs> they are very we but right. um they're all demonstrable in one kind of specific way which is um they all have figurines they mm-hmm. love their figurines they love yeah. their figurines yeah absolutely. and in the case of kit meat we have what we think are representations of the patron deity of edom Costs, right? Um, so who so looks really wacky, the, by the way, with his three horns? That's right, right. So we have, in many respects, it's quite different in that it's an iconic tradition. Yeah, right. And that's the crux of the biscuit, really. But that right brings there. us, but that drags us back west of the river. I thought we wanted to stay east of Let's the river. Stay. Well, I yeah, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> I want to go east. Are there um, are there other small temples slash shrines within fortification areas? I'm sure there are, and I'm just not able to think of them right now. Well, there's um, if you remember our our good friend and colleague Sam Wolf published an article about cult corners, mm. uh, and they're found in a variety of contexts, sometimes near fortification walls or in structures near fortification walls. And this is sort of, you know, this example from Herbert Almudena sort of is more representative of that. It seems to be up against a casemate wall, though I will say that the clear evidence for a casemate wall is a little somewhat aspirational, but <laughs> okay. Know, aim isn't, high. There, isn't there a six chambered gate supposed to be there? But there is a six chamber gate and that is clear. That is very clear. Um, and that it is. This this small room has benches, some built up against the walls and some independent in the middle of the room. And then it also has these um, altars. So that's a lot of good evidence in a good context for it being, you know, actual cultic space. What goes on in the space, we don't know. And that's sort of the more enigmatic side of it. Um, You know, libations and burning things, fine. now we know, based on you know that excellent case study of the residue found on the altars at Arad, that you know that they're um, that they're lighting it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there and- are other there there are a number of other uh, cult sites in Transjordan. So, for example, uh, at Deir Allah, mm-hmm. right in the Jordan Valley dating to about um, 800 with the famous inscription mentioning, mentioning, mentioning <laughs> um, Balaam, son of Beor. Um, right. And that, I'm just looking at the thing here. It's it, that building, that room is four meters, 4.3 meters by three meters. Very right. petite in an unfortified, unwalled village. Right. So, and a bigger temple at Pella, 12 meters by eight meters um, from the 10th century. So that's pretty sizable. Right. That's so Uh, non-comparable to this tiny little thing. Well, I think the point is just variety. So they're not just all little pokey, not all little tiny pokey um, rooms. Uh, Damia, which is a very small site, near the Jordan River. So what's it say here? 14 by six meters with some platforms and some figurines and horse and riders. Right. Um, Though though there you're starting to get into the world in which I think you have to question the coherence of of that particular example as being a, you know, temple, right? 
Right. But if you go to Ataruz, Kirbet Ataruz. There we have. And there you have the main room. It's the the big room is 8.5 by 11 meters with a stone slab. And it's got multiple rooms and a courtyard and this room and that room and uh, figurines and pedestals. and Right. That's 10th through the through the 8th century. So that's very that's very familiar. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's almost, that's almost, um, geez, what was the name of the place under the underpass? Moza. Moza. Sort of Moza-like. Sort of Moza-like. Right. Um, And I think Ataruz has like a similar altar and I think an inscription as well. Yeah. And of course, what's kind of interesting is that we have a lot of examples coming up in Edom. Um, We don't have any real great examples in Ammon, and now we have a limited number of examples in Moab, which right. is sort of inverse because Moab, uh, Ammon is sort of, you know, the richest of the environments and the most coherent and wealthiest of the three Jordanian, uh, Transjordanian polities, and Edom is sort of the most marginal. Um, and yet their, you know, cult, concerns seem to be more articulate and yeah that's interesting right it is kind of interesting right um Um, and it it also follows edomite expansion as they expand west you know we get kit meat which is sort of the best articulation of a of a of one of these states temples that we have Mm -hmm. Um, sort of the most elaborate and the most the clearest so um and it again is sort of linked to that expansion but the most, but when those, but the most notable things about it, any of these notable sites are the figurines, right. of which there are hundreds. And at Keat Meat, in the which is in the Negev, um, you have arms, you have legs, you have feet, you have faces, you have heads, you have parts of heads. You've got whole things, hybrid faces on vessels, mm-hmm. and you got you have zillions of these things, and there is it's it's its own kind of weird tradition um that is not well why do you say weird i don't well, think you I, need, uh, need to say weird yeah i agree that's mean i know <laughs> no, I, just think, I just think it's you know i think they're all a little bit idiosyncratic but they're also a little bit similar yes exactly but that's what you don't have in israelite or judean um examples right. are you mean hundreds of bit. hundreds of hybrid figurines with with faces right you have very limited repertoire of figurines period in the israelite and judean iron ages right but at least in the case of judah um we don't have the main cult center that's correct so, yeah, and we're yeah. never going to have that. Okay, but Kid Meat is not the is not the main Edomite cult center, and you have hundreds of these these. No, no, no. The Abraham, oh, no, I totally right, yeah. absolutely. And I we also don't know if it isn't, and that's sort of the interesting question, and whether this is an accurate because you know we have the because of the Hebrew Bible we have this notion that there is one national cult center in in the United Monarchy and then in Judah. And in the examples from Edom and Moab, we have sort of more of a bottom-up, smaller kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But this is not to say that, um, and so it sort of makes it seem like we have two very different traditions. But we do, we do have a temple at Arad. We do have the Lord yeah. Altar at Beersheba. We right. do know that there's cultic kinds of installations all over. We so right. think right. that Judah is more variable. And and I think that sort of reflects the kind of variability that we see on the east side of the river. And I think that the big difference is the degree of, um, you know, iconic or aniconic traditions. But there's a lot of mysterious things going on. So you mentioned Dear Allah. And the wackiest thing, most interesting thing about Dear Allah is that on the wall of this little um, cultic room or whatever it is. We call it a cultic room in part because of the inscription. We have this really long inscription on plaster that we simply don't get anywhere else. And it's perfectly in, you know, simpatico with um, with the biblical text. Right, right. right. 
And so why are why aren't it, you know, as far as we know, is this a normal kind of thing, writing on plaster walls? Or is this an unusual thing? I mean, I would think it's probably more common than we think, and we just don't have it. Yeah. But it's like we get these, you know, from the he we get the Hebrew Bible in, in you know, from Judah, and we get much less of everything else. We get the you know, the Balaam inscription from Dear Allah, which opens up things really in a very interesting set of ways. We get temples with lots of figurines uh, or cult rooms with lots of figurines. Right. And in Amman, you have mo monumental sculpture, stone right. sculpture that's, exactly. you know, six feet high or eight feet high, whatever it is, in the kind of sort of North Syrian eyes slash Egyptian eyes tradition. <laughs> right. Well, that's a whole other thing. There's yeah. a lot of Egyptian tradition, a lot of Egyptian, you know, stylistic motifs creeping into all of this. Yeah. Both sides of the river. Right. right but you right. have, but you have no monumental um, human sculpture west of the river. Right. That right. So, so I wanted to say something about that. So um, we do have a lot of what we tend to call folk religion, popular religion. We can't excavate Jerusalem. The, the main temple, but we see, you know, all the female pillar figurines and we see the horse and rider figurines that may or may not be cultic and all over the Jerusalem area and, yep. um, and the Arad temple and now the Moza temple, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we have plenty, but we don't have, like you were saying, JP, we don't have the, the center, but we have plenty going on. And maybe, maybe the, either the difference was that um, they really weren't doing so many, um, representations of the God, which, you know, to follow the Bible and don't represent the God, uh, maybe that makes sense. Or maybe we just, I don't know, don't have it because we haven't excavated Jerusalem itself fully. Um, but, uh, or it's a real difference between East and West, between what's going on in the Okay, East. but that that raises an important point. Let's, let's wind the clock back to the second millennium BC. Can't we say, can't we say let's... Um, Set the Wayback Machine? Set the Wayback Machine. Very good. <laughs> Much better. Because we need to date ourselves even more. Always. For, for the listener. <laughs> Always. So um, so in this in the Middle Bronze Age and the Late Bronze Age, you He's have <laughs> you have lots of um temples all over the southern Levant on both sides of the river. And they're all sort of kind of similar. And yes. they're they're rectangular. Well, I guess one or two are square, and they've got lots of animal bones, and mm -hmm. sometimes they have multiple rooms, and blah blah blah. But there's not a lot of differentiation east versus west. Correct. Yeah, one yeah. or two exceptions. Always. Um, um the the Amman Airport Temple from the late right. Bronze Age, which is a which some people don't think is a temple. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, which is an un unusual at all sorts of levels, not least of all because it seems to have like human sacrifices or something. I don't know. But how how then? Um, so at twelve hundred, you have a, a unified or, or unitary or similar tradition on two sides, and two hundred and certainly four hundred years later, it's very very much differentiated. Well, that. I think that actually, or is it? I think that tracks very well. So we have a uniform and unified Canaanite collective mentality, cultural landscape. Right. That begins to fall apart between 1250 and 1150. Okay. And we have a 200 year liminal period between 1200 and 1000, in it's which we have. Site. <laughs> say what? It's, it's fission site. Yeah. <laughs> In which we have the, you know, the whole process of ethnogenesis when Canaanites fracture and become all sorts of other ites, right? And, and then out of that we get lots of similarity with, you know, sort of distinctive elements and sort of specializations. Why are the Ammonites the only ones making statues, right? Um, why are the Moabites the only ones writing in plaster on walls? Yeah. Though clearly they're in, in you know, discussion with biblical authors because right. they're telling the same. They right. have and why are the Edomites making hundreds and hundreds of, <laughs> yeah. you know, hybrid uh, ceramic pot slash 
um, human figurines. Exactly. And here we get to maybe how the Marvel universe and the DC universe <laughs> are constantly, you know, competing with each other to have familiar but distinctive takes on the same superheroes. That's very interesting. I like that. Right. So they want to have their franchise, but they want it to be familiar to the other group so that the other group might be, you know, <laughs> might be willing to come into their, you know, into the theater and see the DC movie as opposed to the Marvel movie. So they want it to be traditional and recognizable and familiar, but they also wanted to have some small distinctive element. Yeah. And this thus you get, you know, superheroes, gods who are both a little bit similar and a little bit different. And in the case of Yahwehists, you know, they're the most different because they're the ones who are saying we are completely aniconic. Yeah. And Except for here and there where, right. where right. somebody didn't get the message and you know <laughs> draws it on a on a pot or a wall like it exactly. Quintilat Ajrud in the fortress lonely western negative. Right. Right. Or we did a, a podcast on that shirt that some scholars oh, think some might, sort of oh right might need. represent Yahweh. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. it's two triangles with a face. Right. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's what it was. Right. But what you're saying, so why not really? Exactly. It's pretty obvious. But what you're saying actually jives really well with something I was thinking before we even started podcasting today, which is the analogy. Well, the 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 DC and the Marvel is a better analogy. I grant you that. But I was thinking about the fact that everybody goes to church, but every church does things a little bit differently. And you can widen this and say, everyone is Christian, but within Christianity, beliefs vary. You've got many different sub-religions well, within okay. Christianity. Yeah, okay. But, you know, but, so, but what are the, what are the, what are the different Christian sects that you're going to refer to? Eastern well, versus Western? Well, or so for starters, Pro Eastern Protestants versus, versus and, Catholics? And then Protestants versus Catholics. And then this group of Protestants versus that group of Protestants and and so you can, and then you can go, you know, maybe this diocese does things slightly differently than that diocese. But they all have very specific political contexts in which these right. fractures, schisms, and reformulations took place. And we don't know that that wasn't You can look at an even more closed right. system in which you get the same degree of fractures and schisms, but at a really extraordinarily esoteric and almost imperceptible way. And that's the differences between Hasidic dynasties, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which the rivalries are even more extreme than some of the rivalries you just mentioned. And the ways of differentiating are absolutely imperceptible to only the small cohort of people involved in them. You know, mm -hmm. I wear my garment, you know, two inches you know, below my knee. I wear my garment two inches above my knee. I wrap a, you know, I tie a knot, you know, that faces left. I tie a knot that faces right. I use knives that are only sharpened by X, Y, or Z. You know, all of this kind of craziness. Absolutely. Um, That's a great analogy. And and also an analogy that would not be perceptible archaeologically because all the right. knots would disappear. And you look at a kitchen of this sect and a kitchen of that sect, and they look pretty much alike because they all have divisions for different dishes and so on. Right. So but if we had their headgear, we would say, oh, yes. These right. stremmels are high and narrow. These stremmels are wide and, you right. know, blah, blah, blah. So, so would, if you're an Iron Age person, um, would you be perceptibly different? If, if you're an Edomite or an Ammonite and you walked into Jerusalem, would you know what's going on? Would you be flagged immediately as, as an Ammonite? Um, well, is if you were wearing one of those funky little Ferengi-like <laughs> head cloths that are on some of the statues, I think they'd say, whoa, 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 right. hey, Ammonite guy, <laughs> what well, are you doing here? What about in, in the Bible, you've got the, the is it the Ephraimites who can't say Shebolet or Sheboleth or whatever it is, right? So they're aware of the small differences between groupings, but they're almost imperceptible, right? Right. See, I think that I think that everyone in antiquity is wherever you are after mm -hmm. after the Neolithic, you are intimately 
aware of all the differences between your group, your clan, your village, your little cluster, mm -hmm. your kin group, and and all of the neighbors. And it can be as something as subtle as um, the way you drape your tunic, or the way, you know the way you wear your hat, right, the way right. you sing off key, uh, and you know, and this and this is necessary because this is how group definition and and group identity is is constituted but you walk into the wrong part of town and you're going to get flagged yeah right and the 200 year period between let's roughly say 1200 and 1000 is the period when all of this is happening mm -hmm. right and that that makes it a very you know it's a fer it's a fer ferment Things are fermenting <laughs> in, a, in a word. They're fermenting and fomenting. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and all the other very much more subtle kinds of distinctions that we have trouble seeing in the late Bronze Age between east of the river, west of the river. Um, these really explode in that period 1200 to about a thousand right right and maybe they explode i mean they're obviously exploding because of of the Politics. need for groups to you know individualize and identify in some competitive fashion with other groups yeah but maybe they're also beginning to react to the the, to the morass of homogeneity in the late Bronze Age, hmm. in hmm. which it was a more polytheistic religion, in which there was a great deal of uniformity in all of the temples, mm -hmm. and in which... Um, well, maybe we just think that there's uniformity in, yeah. in the sense of, okay, we're, we're familiar with the, mate, the, the template, the matrix, but we don't really know what the internal distinctions were. Right. Like, okay, you know, in, yes. in our temple, we do it this way, or we worship this god or goddess as the primary individual. Right. And if you just want to, because, if you want something else, you go down the block. Right. right. Just because our temples look alike doesn't mean we're even worshiping the same deity. It's just how temples look. Um, or maybe it is the same deity. Right. Um, and this gets to is. the actual praxis, the cult practice mm -hmm. on the ground level of we have two different kinds of altars because one is liquid libation and one is you know yeah um incense or something and we don't know what the practice is and we can't just with archaeology and we would need a really specific inscription to to tell us that right or a book or a book. and, and the, the fact that we have all these different sort of sources on cult practice and a lot of variability in the archaeological finds though again the variability is both yes there is a lot of variability but it it's off it it is within a kind of a finite system it's a little bit of a of a ship in a bottle we can see you know the egyptian presence in canaan in the late bronze age so we can see egyptian temples versus canaanite temples very clearly right yeah. um and uh, but beyond that, we do tend to lump. So I'm not sure if we should be lumping all those late Bronze Age uh, cultic areas as one. Right. And that, of course, that speaks to. Right. And that I don't even want to get into that speaks to a whole big issue that we've that we've often discussed off camera, as it were. Weren't we, uh, weren't we writing an 11th century paper at one point? <laughs> at one point. Yeah, it's going to take 11 centuries to write that paper. <laughs> right. But when. In the larger sense, though, you, you want to have, if you're going to fragment into these different political entities and these different accompanying religious traditions with patron deities, you want them to be mutually recognizable as such and not so, not so far out there that, you know, that there's real that there's real unbreachable cleavages between between the groups um i mean maybe if maybe if they had another you know <laughs> 2000 years there would have developed 
real incomprehensibility between them. But all that said, this is the same process that's going on in Assyria. Is it? Yeah, Ashur. It's the same. Basically, all of these little states are doing the same thing that that the Assyrians are doing in the middle and uh, middle Assyrian and late uh, Assyrian period, Neo Assyrian period. Ashur, he's the he's the chief deity of of the city. Yeah. All the other deities are kind of, you know, they they're they're subordinate. They push in line. They have to get into line. And the king, he's the He's the the viceroy, the representative of of Ashur. The the main temple is a uh, is connected to the palace, right? Uh, to subordinate the the cult, and obviously that fragments later on in their competing traditions. But all well, these other all these other Near Eastern cultures, in especially the first millennium. Are, are kind of doing the same thing, whether they're very big or very small. Well, okay, so Egypt isn't. Egypt is e- still... Well, okay, but Egypt is its own thing. Its own yeah. thing. Right. And, yeah. um, you know, when you're... you're, I agree with you, but there is some structural contexts that I think are important, one of which is the difference between creating a very, very small familiar localized polity statelet mm-hmm. versus the process of homogenization and industrialization needed to create and maintain empire. So the, the Assyrians and the then the Babylonians and, and even the Persians, they, they need to do something very different because they're running a huge territorial empire. That's really, really, you know, filled with lots of people and lots of languages and lots of behaviors and lots of gods. And yeah. so they really have to, you know, right. but the, the journey of a thousand of, miles begins with one step. <laughs> yeah, they have to really <laughs> homogenize yeah, but as this much is not as they with, can. Yeah, no, but this is, a, I see what you're saying. This is not what the Moabites and the Ammonites are, are doing. They're just actually trying to stay free of Assyria and trying to maintain their own identities. And Yeah, but they're following, essentially, they're following the Assyrians. Mm, I, I don't know if that's so conscious. I think that these little statelets with their little national patron deities and religions are all it's you know are all all go back sign to of the, the times yeah well yeah. it's an amorphous state in the 12th and 11th century it begins to sharpen in the 10th century and then from the 10th century down to their various you know endpoints their various denouements they're just trying to maintain coherence or at least the elites are just trying to keep their little kingdoms as together and viable as possible yeah. and they're already sort of have bought in, you know, the interesting thing is they're monotheistic more or less, right? They all have one God, right? So it's not just the Israelites or the Israelites and the Judeans who are monotheistic, but in a sort of a way, you know, the Moabites, Ammonites, and Edomites are also monotheistic, at least as far as we know. Isn't that called monolatry? (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) And so I think that they're just wrapped up in trying to keep these little ideologies and you know, little nationalities together and coherent and, and um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's really good. I think, right. So maybe, maybe the Yahwists are more, don't worship anyone else. That's bad. That's evil. But everybody does have their own main deity. And uh, yeah. And I think they do want to keep them separate. And the Yahwists just have a kind of semi-invisible deity. Right. Right. And the Yahwists are, I mean, there's, and whether these are whether these are important and real and structural, we don't really know, yeah. and we'll never know, because it's kind of ironic that you know Israelites are an Iron Age religion that managed to make it through the you know sort of semi permeable membranes of 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 the you know space time continuum exactly, but. Um, the Israelite elite, or or at least the Judean elite, were really seem to have a real intense interest in history writing. Yeah, this is a longstanding thing. We all know that you worked with the guy who wrote about, you know, the first historians, and and they put a lot of emphasis on that, as right. opposed to making figurines. Right. So you know there are these little idiosyncratic aspects to each of these groups. Um, and it just so happened that 
for whatever reason, the Judeans made it through with yeah. their more or less intact. It would be great to have a Moabite Bible. Um, right. Just, so would, cool. yeah. right. It would be great to have a, a Judean inscription on a plaster wall. Um, right. It would be great to have, a, a, you know, an Israel of the North, a ninth century Israelite set of um, sculptures. Yeah. But they all... And you wrote the book on secondary state formation, Alex. You know, they're all utilizing the same, you know, media and modalities and things like that, but always in a slightly, a slight different emphasis and a slight different way of doing it. And I think that's all to articulate their own individuality. I agree with that 100%. And you think about sort of regionalism. We always talk, and Alex, you might have been the first to write this too. We always talk about the Southern Levant in terms of very small, different regional subsects, all living right next to each other and interacting with each other. And uh, and I think we can't forget that that everybody thinks of themselves as different and special, even though they're all kind of the same. That's what my mother said. <laughs> <laughs> Being special. I think everybody's mother said that. I think right. so, yeah. yeah. Well, so, so why don't we have... I, I I suppose at this point it's late in the game. If there was like Moabite national literature to be had somewhere, we probably would have found it by now. Right. And the most we have is one pretty monumental inscription. Right. But that's the point is that we have a monumental inscription from Moab, but they never continued their tradition of history writing in any Afterwards. kind of larger, more permanent way. That was going to make it through all of these imperial, right. you know, and, and, and certainly if certainly they had they had histories or stories, they had yeah, right. prayers yeah. and psalms right. and praise. The Israelites and... are or the Judeans are the reverse of that. They're not they're not writing any steely down. But they're writing court history. But they're writing books and yeah. they're keeping that literary tradition right. alive. Right. And that's paramount to them. It's almost and... like they're a people. <laughs> of... <laughs> Careful. Careful you're right. I'm not going to say it. I would. I would draw my remarks. Wrong. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, but well, but, but as a tool for national cohere cohesion coherence, mm -hmm. um, for in internally and externally, nothing beats writing stuff down. Right. But um, so how come that didn't work so well for the for the Assyrians? Hold on. Back up. Back up. Um, we've talked about writing before in other episodes of this podcast so and and you know potential lost um parchment whatever and you know there's no cop oh, no rachel with the lost parchment routine yeah 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 <laughs> um, it's true and, and you know there's no original copy from the sixth century never mind from the ninth or eighth century of you know the j source and the e source or the um, compendium of the sixth century right we don't have that as a as a um, source. So who's to say that whatever, or maybe it was all oral tradition. So who's to say that the Moabites weren't doing that themselves? Right. But, but where is it? it that's the, the original from the West side of the river. Okay. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Right. I mean, it, you know, there, there are little bits and pieces. There are little, little tiny inscriptions on oh, silver right. amulets that, that point to a larger, a larger tradition. Or you're saying we don't even have those little tiny inscriptions exactly. on these. Correct. And it's a long lasting tradition. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So that you have enough little tidbits, exactly what Alex just sort of mentioned All from right. the sixth century and the fifth century and the fourth century and the third century and the second century, and then the Dead Sea Scrolls and then a canonized Hebrew Bible that gives you that timeline, even though it's, you know, mm -hmm. only little bits and pieces. Whereas in the Moabite, Edomite, Ammonite case studies, it's that it those timelines are, are, you know, they, they sort of end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't have them, you don't have, you know, priestly elites copiously scribing away in yeah. the fifth and fourth and third and second centuries. Now, an interesting point of comparison would be to think about the Phoenicians, because they colonize, they transmogrify, they change into all sorts of different other kinds of highly literate people that ultimately end up as things like Carthaginians and all sorts of stuff like that. So, you know, you have a lot of different trajectories going on here. Um, and they're all different 
I guess what we're sort of thinking about is, you know, there is a degree of uniqueness to the Judean example because because they make it out of the Iron Age with their yeah. foundation stories intact and permanent because they've been written down. Right, right. That's actually very, very interesting. And uh, I mean, it also makes me think I've always assumed that Judea uh, survives the the Assyrian, I'm sorry, the Babylon, no, the Assyrian tax, because the Assyrians have to go fight on other fronts. But maybe there is also something special about the Judeans and how they perceive themselves that were able to keep their identity um, for another hundred plus years. Just right, like, and there, and we know obviously from the, uh, the the Assyrian sources and the Babylonian sources that there's millions of people who are who are deported from every culture all around all around the Near East, and they end up in all sorts of crazy places, and in and in Mesopotamia itself, especially. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, but they sort of, and they're known by names, and they're they're designated as you know the Phoenician or something. Right. right, but they they peter out. They do peter out. And on that note, on that final note, words, thoughts. Yeah. Um. Somehow we got from this small shrine, um, with some interesting altars and other finds in a site in Jordan, to the big questions that the uh, que in oh, world history. We ask the big questions here. Yeah. Yeah. You don't supply the big answers. The big <laughs> Never. I have the big answer. That's my final thought is if, if you have a, a tradition, make a backup. <laughs> <laughs> Write it down and make a backup. JP, you got any final thoughts? Not going to top that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. And... Well, this episode has me wanting to differentiate myself just enough, but to remain recognizable, at least in my new phone. So as always, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. You can follow him on Instagram at 54BPM. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Dumont Television Network, a division of Yo-Yo Dine Propulsion Systems. Be sure to catch another exciting episode of the Maury Amsterdam Show, Thursdays at 9. To get in touch with us, leave us a comment, hit the little heart-shaped button, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ThisAncient, and on Facebook also, contact us via email at ThisWeekInTheAncientNearEast, it's all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 021. Three, four.